Good morning, Village Church. So you must be loyal to the Packers, right? Because I thought, oh, yes, I've been trying to tell people that forever. You won't miss the game if you TiVo it. You'll be fine. Anyways, open up your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We are in a study on the life of King David. And uh, there's a a line that God says about David uh, I want to remind you of. And the line is this, that David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And as I have listened and talked to many of you, I know that this is a very deep desire for many of you. In fact, the question that has come back to me regularly has been, what does it actually mean to be after God's own heart. How do I know that I'm a person who is after God's heart? And as we get ready to launch into this text, I want to give you two um, simple um, categories to think about, two ways to know that you are somebody who is after God's own heart. And the first way, if you look in your notes, you can, you can write this down. Um, the first way that you, are, you know that you are somebody who is after God's heart is this. You desire the presence and the nearness of God. You desire the presence and the nearness of God. If you remember last week, David, who is the man after God's own heart, was not content to have the Ark of the Covenant, which was where the presence of God was centralized and located. He wanted to make sure that the presence, the nearness of God was, was close to him, was in the midst of his city, that he could go to God, know where God was at. He wanted to be near God. And I know that for many of us, this idea, we say we want the nearness of God, the presence of God, uh, but the reality is many of us don't want it bad enough to pursue it. Uh, If we really step back and we think about our time in the Word of God, our time in prayer, our time with God's people, um, oftentimes those things can be minimal, they can be put aside, not prioritized. But here's the reality. A person who is truly, truly Uh, after God's own heart, who has a heart after his, is somebody who literally pursues him um, consistently. And so um, back in January, John Thomas, the guy leading worship, um, uh, purposely tripped me, and uh, I'm kidding. I hurt my ankle playing basketball with him. I was guarding him. He's like six feet taller than me. And, and uh, so I hurt my ankle. And I'll tell you, one of the things that my heart longs for, it's a little thing, but I long to play basketball, to exercise, to use my body, to get out and run. It's why uh, uh, winter drives me insane. And uh, for like six months, I couldn't play basketball. In fact, for a number of months, I couldn't do a lot of things. But I'll tell you, my heart wanted it. I would get up like every day and I would test it. Be like, I'd say, oh, do, can I, am I ready to play it? No, nope, can I run? And I would start doing little things can I walk? Can I run? Can I work it out? Can I play basketball? And because my heart wanted it, I pursued um, going after it. And it's as simple as that. When we say, you have a heart after God, I want to ask you this question. Do you pursue the nearness, the presence, intimacy with God regularly? Because if you have a heart that is after God's, here's what you're going to find. Um, your heart will be inclined to want to be near him and around him and around his people. It's a profound thing that happens. And so we saw this with David last week, and this morning, here's what we're going to see. And this is the second thing that a heart, somebody with a heart after God does. Um, they desire the glory of God. I want to make this more tangible, because I know for some of you that is a very ethereal comment. They desire the fame of God, the renown of God the celebrity of God, the acclaim of God. Let me break it down even further. There's something inside of the man or the woman or the student or the child after God's own heart that says, today, when I interact with people, I want people to think more highly of Jesus than they did before we met. 
Um, I want people to think more of God. I want them to have more confidence in him. At the very least, whether or not they love God or not, um, I want them, because of their interactions with me, to have a higher view of God. And so here's what happens. The person has a heart after God. Here's what you're going to find. You're going to find, like David, you have a desire to be near him, to pursue him. The word, again, we use is intimacy with God. It's not just a flippant once or twice a week relationship. It's a regular, ongoing, daily part of your life. And then what you're going to find is this, this desire wells up inside of you that you want other people to think much of God. You want to make much of him, and, and you want other people to, um, by your interactions or your decisions or the way you live your life, to think more highly of, of Jesus. And this is what we find with David. David finds himself this morning in a quandary. Uh, David looks at his life, and he wants God to get more glory. He wants people to think more highly of God, and he has this great idea. Look at me, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, Now when the king lived in his house. This is a big, beautiful house that he built for himself, made of cedar, meaning it is super opulent and expensive. When he lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, now Nathan is the prophet. Nathan's kind of like his chaplain, his spiritual advisor. Nathan has never showed up, shown up in the biblical text until now. Randomly now Nathan shows up. The king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Does something feel off to you? Something feel not right? So I imagine David is going from battle to battle to battle, and David is taking down these um, foreign cities, these foreign countries who worship foreign gods, and he goes to one city, and he sees this beautiful temple that they have made to some false god that doesn't even exist. And he um, tears it down, destroys it, and kills all the people. Then he goes to the next town, he sees this other temple, and he sees temple after temple after temple, and he looks around, and he comes back home, and he finally rests, and he looks at the tent, and he says, why is it? These unbelievers who worship gods that don't even exist give more energy and more time to giving their God a home than I do. Why is it my God just sits in a tent and yet they step back and they say, these people who don't have, we'll say, the spirit of God, and they, they give their God all of this energy and all of this time and all of this money and all of this resources. I think David finally stepped back and he realized that he needed to step up and that God put on his heart a desire to give him more glory, to make more of his name. So David has this um, idea, and the idea is, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to build him a temple. I'm going to build him something that is beautiful, that is worthy of his name. Uh, and this is, I love this, this is like a holy moment that we get to, to peek into. This moment when a follower of God, who is a man or woman after God's own heart, uh, and they desire to bring God more glory. Like the Lord puts on their heart a dream or an idea or a vision or a burden and says, man, I have all these resources. I would love to serve God in this way. And these are moments where people who are a man or woman, a student or child after God's own heart, step back and they say, I want to give God more glory. I want to do this for the Lord. And David has this incredible moment, which is so important. And Nathan responds to this, I think in the way that probably any of us would respond to somebody who had an incredible idea to do something that would measurably give God more glory. He says, go for it. I mean, isn't that what we would say to somebody who said, uh, hey, I want to do this thing for God. What do you think? I mean, you'd probably say, yeah, that's a great idea. Nathan, verse 3, says this, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, did Nathan consult God? Answer, 
No, you can respond. No, he did not, he did not consult God. Um, Nathan was just responding. A, a prophet um, speaks prophetically when God says, hey, go tell them to do this. This is a moment where Nathan gave some probably good advice, but he didn't go before the Lord to really check and see if this is what God wanted. And so David comes before the Lord and says, God, I want to do something big for your name. I want to do something huge. I've got the resources. I've got the time. I've got the energy. I want to lift up your name. I want everybody who hears about the name of my God to say, that God is great and beautiful. And so David says, I want to build you a house. And God responds with uh, three different answers. And here's the first answer that he responds with. No. No. How would that make you feel? I mean, David's planning and scheming and putting out ideas in his head together, and he's got all these ideas. And like you would think that the Lord would say, yes, like my glory, more of my glory. Yes, David, I want more of this. And the Lord just stops for a moment and says, great idea, wrong person, wrong timing. Great idea, David, but no. The answer is no. First uh, Chronicles 17 is a parallel um, text to this. It's this, the same story told from a little bit different perspective. And the first words that came out of God's mouth in First, first Chronicles 17 were this. Thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. Now, do you think David felt crushed in this moment? I mean, I would be, honestly, if I had this much excitement about something, uh, and I wanted to do something big for God, and he just came in and said, no. Uh, that, would, that would crush me. And, uh, but here's the second answer he gives. I think it goes like this. Wow. Like, really? David, that's, David, that's awesome. I want to read for you the text that comes next. And I think in our minds, we have this idea that God is always angry. So I'll read it in the way that I think many of us will be tempted to read it. And then I'll read it uh, in a way that I think is actually like meant. Um, Verse four, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Like this kind of like, who do you think you are attitude? And as you look at this whole text, that is not the vibe or the emotion that this text is, is communicating all the way through. Here's what I think the Lord is actually saying in the tone. Uh, I think he said, was saying this. You would really build me a house to dwell in? Like, David, that's really beautiful. Dave, that actually makes me happy. Like, I, I want to let you know that I appreciate that. And I think that interpretation is going to be fleshed out very clearly as we read the rest of, the, rest of this. He responds with a wow. Verse 6, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling, a humble God with a humble people. In all places where I have moved with all people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel with whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And what, what God is making clear is that David is not obeying some command from generations past that somebody before him should have obeyed. I mean, this desire welled up in David's heart alone, and the Lord wants to make it clear for all the readers from here on out, like David is a man after God's own heart, and this is what the heart after God does. It steps back and it asks the question, how can I give my God more glory tangibly today, realistically, with where God has put me and the resources I've, uh, he's given me? Now, let's be honest. Most of you um, don't have the platform or financial um, ability to build a huge temple for God if you did theologically. I think you might be missing a few things, but um, every one of us, God has positioned us exactly where he wants us and given us resources. And one of my favorite questions to ask in your community groups, you'll see on the back of your notes, um, this is one of the questions I want you guys to um, talk through. And here's the question is, what is something that I can start doing 
stop doing or shift or change doing that would give God more glory? What is one thing in my life right now, right here, that I can start doing, stop doing, or shift that would give God more glory tangibly right now? I think if the Village Church walked away and we made two commitments, uh, every one of us individually, I will daily pursue intimacy with God, and I will weekly, I will ask God, and I will try to do one thing that gives God more glory, that makes him look more awesome and spectacular and marvelous and majestic and beautiful in someone else's mind. And I will do one thing a week that just makes God look better. And then I will do one thing every day where I get to pursue intimacy and nearness with God. I think this church would transform and flip on its head. I think it'd be amazing. And, and think about that. 52 times a year, uh, you'd step back and, and you would do one thing measurably where you could say, I'm going to give God more glory right now. Uh, I think it would be beautiful. But what, what is one thing I can start doing, stop doing, or shift to give God more glory? But here's the third answer that God gives David. Number one is no. Number two is wow. And number three is, David, I'm going to build you a house. <laughs> uh, I love this. That God is actually so moved by David's request and by David's heart, that God uh, comes to David and gives him um, one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible. In fact, um, 2 Samuel 7, I want to contend with you, is one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. What we're about to read, there are literally hundreds of thousands of commentaries and pages written on this. And so somehow I'm going to try to condense for you what is one of the most um, really uh, written about subjects in all of biblical literature. And uh, I'm going to try to condense it for you in about four hours and 17 minutes. So um, just in time for the Bears game to be done. You'll be fine, I promise. Um, so here's what I want you to do. Um, we're going to take a little shift, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out your notes if, if you have them in front of you or a pen. And uh, I want to train your brain for a little bit. I want to help you think about the Bible uh, in a way that is appropriate. And uh, there are a lot of people who, when they open up the Bible, they say, I have no idea what is going on. I would say, raise your hand if that's you, but I'm not going to make you look like that right now. So, um, but this is a subject that we're going to talk about right now that when I first understood it, um, was truly, truly eye-opening. My brain blew up. I put it back together, and I said, wow, I feel like for the first time, I understand the arc of Scripture, the narrative of Scripture, what is going on in the whole grandness of all of these books, 66 books. Um, I felt like I finally understood it. And it was one word that uh, brought all of this together for me. And you guys ready for it? No? You guys ready for it? You, get, you, get, you got your pens out? You ready? You got your intellectual hats on, right? I'm just going to leave you hanging for as long as I can. And uh, the word is not new to many of you, but I think most don't understand it. It's the word covenant. And I want to unpack this for you, and then I want to show you how this plays itself out in Scripture, and then why what we're um, studying is one of the most important texts in all of Scripture. Um, a covenant, very simply, it's a promise between two parties with blessings and curses. It's a, it's a promise between two parties with blessings and cursings. Now, two facts about covenants. Um, here's the first one. There is either, um, every covenant is either conditional or unconditional. Co conditional or unconditional. A conditional covenant would be something that you probably actually engage in regularly. So I want you to imagine you go to the store and you buy a candy bar. What kind of candy bar? Somebody? Snickers, that's exactly what the 930 service said also. Um, good choice, you guys are geniuses. Uh, this should be a commercial for Snickers. Seriously, it would be great. Um, 
So you go and you, you say to the person behind the counter, I would like a Snickers, here's some money, and they give you a Snickers in response. And it's conditional. They give you the Snickers if you give them the money, but then if you um, uh, eat the Snickers, you're blessed because you've given them the money and it tastes really, really yummy. It's a conditional agreement that you walk in. It's economic. If you, then I, right? And there are some covenants that work like that, but in Scripture, the majority of the covenants are not conditional. They are unconditional, which means it does not matter what you do. Um, one party will do his part of the covenant. And so I think about marriage. When you get married, this is supposed to be an unconditional covenant. I look at my spouse, I look at my bride, and say, it does not matter what you do or you do not do. I will be faithful till death do us part. I am making to you an unconditional covenant. I will not break. I will love you. I will love you. I will love you. When you are bad, mean, unkind, whatever the word is, I will still love you because that's my job in the commitment. Now, every husband in this room, we don't quite live up to that, but is God way better than we are? Amen? Yes, yes. He's perfect. And so um, another example of this would be like a will. And when you die, um, you leave, maybe God willing, your money to your children. Now, is there anything that your kids need to do in order to get this money? No, it's just designated for them. It is absolutely secure. It's going to happen. That is going to happen. That's what it should be as long as you get it right. And this is the idea of an unconditional covenant, that God enters into these covenants and that it is unconditional. I will do my part even if you rebel against me. Even if you disobey, even if you're an imbecile, I will do my part of the covenant because I always, always do what I say I'm going to do. And there are five um, covenants. Well, the second actually aspect of a covenant, and John Piper calls covenants God's job description. And I love this, where God enters into agreements or promises um, with humanity, and he says, here's what I'm going to do. This is my job. In fact, you're going to notice in the covenant we'll examine this morning, there are 11 I will statements. I will, I will, I will, I will. Despite you, despite your disobedience, despite all the other stuff you do, I will. And that God is going to enter into an unconditional covenant with David. But before we do that, you need to understand some of the covenants in the Bible. And so if you look at your notes, you'll see that first covenant is called the Adamic Covenant. Pop quiz, who was that covenant with? Adam. It was not with some person. All right, good, Adam. Uh, anyways, you get the joke. Okay. Uh, so there are many aspects to this because God told them conditionally, if you eat of the tree, you will die. And, uh, but there is one part that happens in Genesis 3 where God makes an unconditional covenant or promise with Adam. And so Adam and Eve have sinned. They are going to die. That's part of the conditional nature of it. Uh, but there's an unconditional promise that God is going to make. And God gathers Satan the man and the woman all together. And he gets them in this little powwow, and uh, he looks at the man, and here's what he says. One of your offspring, one of your sons, uh, is going to be wounded in the process of crushing Satan, the serpent. Satan's hearing this, obviously, because he's there. And God promises that one of your offspring, your seed. Now, if I'm Adam, do I think it's going to be one of my sons? Most likely, Cain, Abel. And if I'm Satan, I probably think the same thing. It's going to be one of, one of his sons. But here's what Satan knows, and here's what Adam and Eve know, and here's what God knows. God has made an unconditional promise that one of Adam's offspring will be wounded, and in that process of wounding, he will crush the head of the serpent and destroy him once and for all. Now, uh, years go by, and Adam is 
wondering um, which of my offspring will it be. Satan is wondering which of his offspring will it be. Take a little hiatus. We have the Noahic covenant, and this is the covenant that God made with Noah. And God promised with a rainbow that he would never destroy the earth through a flood again, which I kind of think is funny because he's like, I won't do it with a flood, but I'll do it with fire. (laughs) Um, You'll notice in your notes, by the way, I would like you to just draw attention to the rainbow colors in your notes. It took me like five minutes of my life. (laughs) And I thought, that's really cute. I think if that doesn't make you smile just in the middle of the sermon, I don't know what will. But um, anyway, so Genesis 8 and 9, God promises I'll never do that. It's an unconditional covenant. Never again will God destroy the earth through a flood. Now let's, let's, let's go back to this Adam seed thing, okay? God comes to a man named Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham called the Abrahamic covenant. And there are a number of aspects to this covenant. For example, he says, it's in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a great name. I mean, we're talking thousands of years later, we're still talking about Abraham. Does he have a great name? Yes, absolutely. Promise fulfilled. You're going to have great number of descendants. In fact, uh, the Israelites became millions in number. The New Testament says anybody that places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, um, is a descendant of Abraham. So the descendants of Abraham are millions, if not billions, strong. So did he get a huge family out of this? You better, you better believe it. Uh, number three would be a great land, and that God would give Israel um, a land. And Israel got that land, and at the end of the day, this land, although culminates, in the new heaven and the new earth. But then there's this fourth promise that I really want to dig deep in, and here's what it is. That through Abraham's seed would come someone who would bless the entire world. So now if I'm Satan, I'm stepping back, and I'm trying to figure out of all the plethora of humanity, okay, I've I've narrowed it down with the flood to Noah and his family, but then they had sons and daughters, and I'm wondering, where is going to be the one who crushes my head while I wound him? Who's going to be the one that I spar with, and in the middle of that spar, um, he's going to be, he's going to kill me. And now he knows, okay, it's in Abraham's line. So now he's got a little more clarity and trajectory. And then Abraham Abraham has 12 sons, right? And now he's figuring out, oh no, which one is it? Because those sons have sons, and we learn in Genesis later, I think in Genesis 52, that it would be from the tribe of Judah, and he gets more clarity. And so what you start seeing here, though, is that there is this theme, and this theme starts with Adam. It's picked up by Abraham, and what we're going to find here in just a moment is that David is going to pick up this theme, and we're going to get more clarity on what it means that the seed who is going to crush the head of the serpent and bless the entire world. So what happens with Abraham is he sets up, God gives him this land and this people called the... Jews, the Israelites, right? So there we go, right? Not Jesus, right? That's people here, the Israelites. Okay, so it's like Bible answers. Jesus? No, 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 no. And he gives them this land, and now there's another covenant, and it's called the Mosaic Covenant. You may know this as the Old Covenant. Now, the Old Covenant is not the Abrahamic Covenant, okay? It's not. The Old Covenant is very simply the promise that God gave to Moses and to the nation of Israel. It was a conditional covenant. If you obey me, then good things happen. If you disobey me, then bad things happen. Hypersimplification, but we don't have time to go into all of it. And what God did is he gave Moses and the nation of Israel a number of laws, 613 laws, that were to govern, govern this nation. And it was a temporary covenant. It was not a permanent covenant, um, and it was called the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. I like to call it, just to help people think it more clearly about it, 
the expired covenant. It was good for a season. It was great and it worked, but there came a point where it was not relevant or needed because something better replaced it. It's sort of like milk. You buy it and it's good, but as soon as the expiration comes, you get new milk. You don't go back to the old milk. And so this is an expired covenant. If I look at you, right, are you under the old covenant? Answer, no. You're not under those laws and regulations. You're under what's called a new covenant, right, which replaced the old covenant. And the new covenant very simply is this. The new covenant is a promise that if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he promises complete fidelity and faithfulness to you for the rest of your life. He promises to pursue you and to give you his Holy Spirit, to start in you and complete what he has started in you, to finish that, to bring you into heaven, to bring you into a new heaven and a new earth, to keep you secure. Uh, God promises a ton of things to you, and that's the new covenant. The new covenant is very simply this. Will you come to Christ and trust in him And if so, he'll give you the Holy Spirit and he will bring you to himself and he will take it upon himself to finish what he has started in you. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're part of the new covenant, which is a great covenant to be a part of. Uh, The Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the expired covenant, the Sinai covenant, they're all synonyms. That is a, a covenant made for Israel, done. Is it good? Yes. Should we study it? Yes. Do we learn about God and his nature and character? Yes. But are we under that jurisdiction? No. Good. Um, Finally, we get to the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant plays off the Adamic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. So in Adam, he says, there's going to be an offspring of Adam who um, will be wounded while crushing the head of Satan. And then we learn in Abraham that this uh, uh, one who crushes the head of Satan will be a blessing for the whole earth. We learn in the end of Genesis that it will be from the tribe of Judah. Now Satan is trying to figure it out. Where is this offspring? Because he knows God always keeps his promise. Always keeps his promise. He knows that one of Adam's offspring, Abraham's offspring, is going to come and destroy him. And so now we finally get this promise to David, and he realizes now that it's going to be a king in the line of David that is going to uh, be the one who crushes him. And so uh, look at verse 8 with me. And uh, before God gives him the promise, God is going to remind him something, I think, really beautiful. And it says this in verse 8. God's past grace to David. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And here's what God wants wants David to know deep down in his heart. Everything you have is from me, period. Everything. You're a shepherd boy. And you found yourself before Goliath? Are you kidding me? And you killed him? Are you kidding me? You've been in exile for 10 years of your life, and everywhere you went, I was with you, supporting you, sustaining you, protecting you. Even when you disobeyed me and you went back into Philistine territory and acted like a crazy person, I was with you. I protected you. I never left you. I was faithful to you. Everything you have is because I've orchestrated your life divinely. I have chosen my presence to be with you. You, David, Um, everything you have is of grace. That's it. Nothing. And that's what he wants him to understand. David, I'm going to make a promise to you, and here's what I want you to understand. Grace is not given because you do something to earn it. Grace is given because I choose to give it. And so God is going to make a promise to David. I think what God wants David to know is this. David, I'm so glad you want to build me a house. I'm just so impressed with that. That's beautiful and amazing. But I want to make sure that we understand something. I'm the one who blesses you. I am the greatest giver. I am the blesser. 
I am the covenant maker. That's my job. And so God reverses this and says, David, I'm going to build you a house. And there, again, I want you to notice the 11 will statements. I will, 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 I will. God is, wants David to know this is unconditional and he will accomplish this despite David's faithfulness or faithlessness. Four things he promises to give David. The Davidic covenant. Number one is an eternal legacy. He says in verse 9 in the middle, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. Are we still talking about David 3,000 years later? Absolutely. Did God come through in this promise? Absolutely. Did David have any ability at that time to know whether or not God was going to keep this promise or not? No, but he had faith in him. He trusted in him because God has never, ever, ever broken his word. Number two, he promises David that he's going to give him an eternal home for him and his people. And he says in verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. It goes back to this Abrahamic covenant where God said, I'm going to give you a land. And God makes a promise to David and says, look, I'm still being faithful to Abraham and I'm going to fulfill that through you. And now I look forward to this moment way, 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 way down the road where we have a new heavens and a new earth and God's people are given an eternal home without end that will be filled with uh, people who love God and give him glory. But he says, you're going to get an eternal home. Uh, and this is in fulfillment to his promise to Abraham. Number three, he's going to give David and David's people an eternal rest. It says, in violent men, shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Is there anyone in here who wishes you could wake up tomorrow and you would know that you know that every single ISIS combatant and militant would be dead and gone? Anyone? How many of you would love to wake up and know tomorrow that there is peace over the entire world and war has ended? That'd be amazing. What would we do? <laughs> How many of you would like to wake up tomorrow morning and you would know that there is not one murderer left on planet Earth? How many of you would like to wake up in the morning and know that you know that you know you will never be lied to ever again? That'd be cool. How many of you would like to wake up and know that nobody will ever, ever mislead you, steal from you, or betray you ever again? I mean, these are things that we could only dream of. And God looks at David and says, there's going to come a day where I'm going to give you peace, I'm going to give you rest, and I'm going to do something in, your, in this people that you can't even imagine. And David, I don't really think, has clear categories for this. We have this picture of a new heaven and a new earth where Jesus reigns in glory, where all evil has been put aside, and goodness and righteousness show forth forevermore. Honestly, I can barely imagine what it's going to be like. And David is just getting a glimpse into this. But if God says he will do it, will he do it? Yes. Fourth thing, he promises David, an eternal dynasty. I mean, David had to wonder at some point, um, will my kids reign after me? Um, and God comes to David and says, look, Saul, yeah, he disobeyed, he was done. But here's what I'm going to do with you. I don't care what your children do after you, whether they obey or disobey. They may not, if they disobey, be on the throne, but there will always be a place for a king from your lineage in Israel. There will be no other lineage through which a king should rightfully be named. And so God 
uh, looks at David and says, here's the promise. Forever and ever and ever, your dynasty will live. And this is where it gets, I think, amazing. Uh, We are in the end of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Not an actual house, because David has a house. We're talking a dynasty. And then he goes and he talks about his son Solomon. And here's what he says in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will, notice all these wills, establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. Now, I love this because David didn't build the house, but you know what he did? He collected gold and silver and precious metals and wood, and he put together the plans and everything else. Like, David does everything short of building this, and right when David is about to die, he looks at Solomon, he's like, okay, I've done everything for you, now you go build the house. I mean, God didn't say I couldn't put all the plans together, and you see his heart after God, and he wants to set up his child, his son, to make sure this works. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of of his kingdom forever. Verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When Solomon or any of your kids commit iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love, this is the Hebrew word, has said, which is God's covenant, faithful, unshakable, I will do what I said I would do, come hell or high water, so help me God. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And then he gets to Jesus, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, I want to go back with you. Genesis 3, God will provide um, a seed of Abraham, or of Adam, who will be wounded while crushing and destroying the serpent. Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, uh, you will have a seed who will bless the entire world. Genesis 49.10 says that the seed will come from the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7 says from the tribe of Judah it will come the, home, the house, the lineage of David. Uh, it keeps going further. Micah 5.2 of the home, house of David, uh, this person will be born in Bethlehem. I mean, God keeps narrowing and narrowing and narrowing, and every time Satan gets a lead, what does he try to do? He tries to go after the people and kill as many of them as he possibly can, because he is trying to stop the promise from Genesis 3 from happening. Here's what I want to do with you. I want you to, I want to take you 300 years after David um, was given this promise. It's the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. I want you to listen to this. Uh, It's going to make you think of Christmas. It's coming soon, by the way. For to us, a child is born, To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, which is a beautiful image, and his name shall be called, catch this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So now this promised one is given the status of deity. This is amazing. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 300 years later, and they are waiting and waiting and waiting. When is the promised one from David's seed going to come? 
About 550 BC, Jeremiah writes this, Behold, the days are coming, and these people are suffering. They want out. They want freedom. They want their leader. They want their savior. They want Satan's head to be crushed. And here's what Jeremiah says, The days are coming. They're not here yet, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, who is our righteousness. And it keeps going. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We have this genealogy. I know that's like your favorite genre of biblical literature, right? Genealogies, anybody? Well, all you have to read is verse 1 of the book of Matthew to understand why this is so important. He says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why is that important? Because Matthew wants you to know that this man's lineage can be traced all the way back to David, to Abraham, and before that, we know the Old Testament tracks Adam right to Abraham. The author of Matthew wants you to understand this. Genealogies track the authenticity of the claim that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Adamic, Abrahamic, and Davidic covenant, that he is that one. That's why genealogies are so important. They preserve the legitimacy of the claim of Jesus Christ to be the the Messiah, the chosen one, who is going to be born in this lineage. Luke chapter 1, verse 30 uh, to 33, Mary is talking to an angel. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name, everybody? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Good, good, good. good. No, No tricks. No tricks. You got it. You got it. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of who? His father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Are you watching how the seed from Adam through Abraham to David culminates in Jesus Christ? And all of the prophets are waiting. And this understanding of who this is is growing. Matthew 21, 9. You remember the um, Palm Sunday? What do we shout? Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Revelation, Jesus says this. The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. What does a key open? A home. And whose home is Jesus in? David, his home, his dynasty, his legacy. And he steps back and Jesus self-identifies, I'm the promised one. I'm the one. When God went to David and he told him, someone's going to step on your throne and they're going to reign forever and ever and ever, that's me. We get to the very end of the Bible. Revelation 22, verse 16. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. He wants all people everywhere to know he was not just an accident. He did not just accidentally fulfill a couple prophecies. Jesus is the fulfillment all the way back from the beginning of Scripture in Adam, all the way culminating to the place in Revelation that he is the one they've been waiting for. Jesus is the one who crushed the head of Satan. Jesus is the one who would be a great blessing to all of the world. Jesus is the one who would sit on the throne of David and reign forever and ever and ever and ever. I love that. And so even though um, uh, we uh, have not had him come back yet, we know that we know that Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead because he has fulfilled every single promise he has ever made to us from the beginning of history until now. We have complete confidence in who he is and what he is going to do. And so Village Church, here is one of the great um, privileges and encouragements for you. You're, you're right now in the wait. 
You're in the in-between, and this is how God's promises work. The beauty of God's promises are seen over the arc of all of history, and honestly, there are many generations who are waiting and die before they see those things fulfilled. But we are not a people who say, I need to see the promises now to trust. We're a people of faith who wait patiently for the Lord. And we're people who are waiting. And we're waiting for Jesus to come back and execute judgment and to judge the living and the dead and to usher in a new kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will reign. And we are people in the wait. But let me tell you, that wait will end one day. And when that wait ends, I promise you this, you want to be on Jesus's team, okay? You do not want to be the one who hides and runs under caves and is going to be found underneath the wrath of God at the end of time. You have been given a Savior, Jesus Christ, who pursues you and has made an unconditional covenant with humanity. And here is the basis of that covenant that every human being is under. If you will come to me, I will love you, forgive you, and finish what I've started. I will literally bring you with me and you will reign with me over all of the earth. And if you reject me, you will be under my wrath for all of eternity. That's the promise. That's the promise. And once you enter into this covenant, it is unconditional and God relentlessly pursues you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And despite our faithlessness and our silliness and our moments of rebellion and our seasons where we just act like imbeciles, God's faithfulness doesn't stop. He looks at you and me and says, you can be as stupid as you want to be. I have promised to be faithful to you. Once you trusted in Christ and received salvation in my Holy Spirit, I have, I have begun this process of never, ever letting you go and relentlessly pursuing you. And so we step back and we look at David, right? We're like, what's the big deal about a promise that he made to David? If God did not promise this to David and fulfill his promise, you wouldn't be here today, and God knows where we would be when all of history ends. And so we're here today because God didn't just make a promise to David, but fulfilled his promise to David. And Jesus reigns in part now, but he will reign bodily over all of the heavens and all of the earth, and I want to be there with him on his team, and I hope you do too. What better way to respond while we are in the wait than to worship him? And uh, I want to pray, invite the worship team to come up, and we're going to lift high the name of Jesus who's coming back. Um, Father, truly, we love you. Um, Thank you for being so faithful to Adam, to Abraham, to David. Thank you for being so faithful to every one of us. Thank you that you have done what you said you would do. But God, I know in between these men are often thousands of years of waiting. And God, we just confess we're not good at waiting. It's really frustrating. But God, you have given us your Holy Spirit. And so God, I pray the Village Church would be known as a group of men and women and children and students who wait patiently for you. And in the meantime, we could be called men and women after your own heart. God, I pray that in the wait, we would redeem this time. We would pursue your nearness and intimacy with you. And we would also redeem these moments that come up all the time to bring you as much glory as we possibly can. And so God, I pray between now and the day you come back that we would take every opportunity to make much of Jesus. And we pray this in the name of Jesus who is coming back. Amen.